As was mentioned previously, just a few moments ago, the joy that we feel to be able to come together this afternoon with the beautiful sunshine about us, some rain perhaps in recent days and hours, how good indeed God has been to us to permit us this opportunity to gather to worship Him. No greater privilege, no greater opportunity exists that you and I can participate in than that. As we continue a series of studies on the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, that very book in which our Bible Bowl students are focusing their efforts on, we have now come through a study of the first several chapters of that book and will invite ourselves into chapters 9 and 10 tonight. It is with that in mind we might briefly recollect some of the more recent matters that we have considered, for they do aid us to at least direct ourselves in the proper fashion for the study tonight. Have we not seen most interestingly David's ascension to the throne of all Israel in chapter 5 of this wonderful book. And on that occasion, having at least come to grips with that thought, David immediately began to consolidate the governmental capital and the religious capital at Jerusalem. With that idea accomplished by the close of chapter number 6, we were able to see in chapter 7 the marvelous and ever everlasting promises that God in fact gave to David, asserting to him that his son would be blessed to construct a temple, but perhaps even more remarkably, that in fact his dynasty would never end. In fact, we saw the fulfillment of that in the person of none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who still to this day reigns on the throne of Israel, having been coronated to that position when God raised him from the dead in Romans 1 verse 4. The thoughts to be asserted then perhaps lead us to appreciate then that tonight we continue on the upward ascension of David. How much higher would he be able to rise? Already he's king. Already God's promised him an everlasting dynasty. Chapters 9 and 10 tonight give us a glimpse of this man. This sweet singer of Israel, 2 Samuel 23, 2. This sweet singer who, in fact, was the very one who not only had soothed Saul with his heart playing in previous days, but was the very one who would be the standard by which the succeeding kings would be measured. With those ideas in mind, let's then look into chapter 9 tonight at the outset of our lesson, and then as time will allow, to move on into chapter 10 as well. First of all, some thoughts for chapter 9. We have just very briefly highlighted some of the major aspects of chapters 5 through 8. I would actually point out perhaps a few more detailed aspects, for they will perhaps set us in an interesting position for the opening part of chapter 9. David's greatness. The real appreciation of where this person had come and where he now found himself. David had been a shepherd. He, in fact, was not even the oldest son of Jesse. When Samuel came to anoint the next king, David was out keeping the flock in 1 Samuel 16. He had to be called. And in that position, it was, in fact, God who told Samuel, the older son, he's not the choice. Same for the second and third, ultimately. Samuel had to ask, are there any more children, Jesse? And Jesse admitted, the youngest is out keeping the sheep. When David, in fact, was brought in, it was he whom God told Samuel to anoint, a person after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13 had informed us of that fact, and the inspired apostle, in fact, records it for us in the New Testament. This very individual, then, whom we may consider, wasn't David in a position given the perspective now that he had his king, and given the fact that he had vanquished all the enemies that had come his way in chapter 8, 
what was there left to accomplish? Would one not perhaps have thought that he would be in a position to be arrogant and prideful? To rise himself up in pride like Saul, his predecessor, had? How tempting that would be. Do you and I not see that on many occasions today? An individual who is grandly and gloriously blessed, who nonetheless allows it to go to his person and gets ahead larger than it ought to be, if we may borrow that expression, and in so doing begins to act in a very demeaning, condescending, hurtful, and perhaps unkind way to those around about him or her. David was certainly in a position perhaps to have that done, but notice how far it is from his perspective. In a few moments, we'll look again at verse 1 of chapter 9. Even at this point, would you note again the reading with me as Brother Greg read it a moment earlier? David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David had a desire thus to display, to exhibit, to direct, to show kindness to the household of Saul. But why might that be? Saul had been his enemy in a very real fashion. He had, in fact, tried to take David's life on more than one occasion. Yet, might we observe and might we notice, here was a man who nonetheless, in humility of spirit, forbearance of character, was desirous of displaying kindness to the very household from whom the kingship had been taken. That's a remarkable aspect of David's character. May we never make a mistake about appreciating that point. I've listed some thoughts for your additional consideration, if we might. In light of his desire to show kindness, David thus besought Ziba. He, in fact, inquired, Who is there whom I may inquire and ask about showing kindness? Verse number 2 says, And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. This servant was one who was David had become to be aware of. And in that knowledge... David straightforwardly asked him, Is there any remaining of the house of Saul? The friendship, you see, of Jonathan and David prompted his desire to show kindness to the household of Saul. Can we not remember the clarity, the power, and the beauty of that friendship that Jonathan and David experienced? It was a beauty. And it was a friendship and a kindness that exceeded far beyond so many appreciated in the world about us. David learned from Ziba that there was a descendant of Saul yet alive. In fact, it was the very son of Jonathan. This man's name, as we learn in verses 3 and 4, was Mephibosheth. Notice, if you would, with me some of the things stated about him, verses 3 and 4. Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodibar. Ziba informed David as to where this gentleman named Mephibosheth could be found. He was living in this little village named Lodibar, and in fact that village is very near to Mahanaim. And we will recall that is where Ishbosheth was reigning a few chapters earlier, that place where the descendants of Saul apparently were surviving. Notice that inasmuch as he was living in the house of Machir, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact he was lame. 
His nerves had dropped him apparently at the tender age of five when he learned or when his father's death, the news of it had reached the city. And in so doing, we now know many years have now passed. For after all, in verses 11 and 12, Mephibosheth now was old enough to have a son of his own. We have thus transpired a number of years, certainly at least it would seem 18 to 20 years from the time of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Would it not be fair to say that this same servant whose name is Ziba, we're told later in the chapter, verse number 10 to be exact, himself had some 15 sons and 20 servants. That thought may in fact be significant when we remember we shall encounter Mephibosheth as well as Ziba again in this book. In chapter 15 and 16 when we see them again, an issue about his children and servants may again be a vital and crucial thing to keep in mind. For now, returning to Ziba's information, we now know that Jonathan's son Mephibosheth is alive. David desired to show him kindness out of his respect for the house of Saul and out of his friendship for Jonathan. To that extent, let us notice what David chose to do, verses 5 and 6. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Two thoughts came to David's mind, and in his desire to illustrate the kindness to this family, and specifically to Mephibosheth, two things were done. First, all of this land that Saul, his grandfather, had owned would be given to Mephibosheth. He would, in fact, have control of it. But what's more, though he may have all that land, the second blessing was an honorable one indeed. He would be granted the opportunity and the tremendous privilege of eating at the king's table, apparently, for the remainder of his days. To eat at the king's table, to eat in the palace, to in fact partake of the king's fare, was a remarkable and wonderful blessing for any person. David wished that and provided it, in fact, into Mephibosheth. As that chapter rolled forward, we notice that Mephibosheth was a very gracious recipient of these blessings, in fact, thanking David profusely for them. And isn't it interesting in verse 13 as it closes, Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table, though he himself was lame on his feet. The graciousness with which he received that blessing of eating at the king's table, and yet governing or reigning over the land that formerly had belonged to Saul, his grandfather, perhaps leads us to consider a lesson, the first one from our study tonight. What might we glean ourselves from this episode in 2 Samuel 9? Doesn't it surround the matter of kindness? Perhaps it would not be an overstatement at all to say that the world can so often appear harsh, cold, indifferent, often apathetic, to an extent that we see cruelty and often great wrath and anger boiling within characters and individuals, and often it displays itself in some of the most inhumane and some of the most cruel of behaviors. Isn't it true, though, that kindness can somewhat soften or round the edges of a world that seems so crooked and harsh? 
to exhibit and to see the clear and basic human kindness that one person may well exhibit to another. Doesn't it bring a smile to our face and brighten our day? Perhaps when we're the recipient or we're able to see it exhibited between others. Basic kindness. It would seem upon listening to grandparents and great-grandparents discuss about things of their day that it would seem that kindness was far more often exhibited in that day and time. Today, we still mustn't forget it, though. For the Bible so often addresses it, demands it, sets it forth as a high plateau and something to which each person should strive. I've listed some features and facts about kindness. Might we begin in Proverbs 19.22, where there it says, The desire of a man is his kindness. Notice again, the desire of a man is his kindness. The American Standard translates it, that which makes a man to be desired is kindness. Isn't it still an easily observed matter that the basic kindness that one person may exhibit to another makes that person a very sterling person of character, a character that captures the attention of not only the one to whom the kindness is shown, but others who are aware of it, knowledgeable of it, and able to see what it is that can come from a basic concern and compassion of one person to another. Wasn't it our Savior who in John 13, 34, and 5 made note of the fact that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another? Kindness, as it's defined in the dictionary, is merely an expression of forbearance with degree of compassion or concern. That's what kindness basically is. And that which makes a man to be desired is his kindness. When a person thinks about my name or yours, does, is kindness one of the first attributes that comes to their mind? Is the thought of an act of kindness one of the first matters that may cross their position when they think of my name or yours? We might hope that it would be. Consider what David now did for Mephibosheth. Here was Saul, who of course now had passed away, being slain, of course, by his own arrow when he committed suicide. And even Jonathan apparently died on Mount Gilboa in the battle with the, the, battle with the Philistines. David had every right to show wrath and maybe even unkindness to that family, for they'd been his enemies, by and large. And yet he chose to display toward them a degree of kindness displayed toward no one else. That speaks much about David's character. Today, would not we have a stronger nation if parties didn't fight so much? It's not always the case one party's wrong and the other's right. Perhaps should we not hold hands and strive together in unison with kindness to make a stronger nation, to make a better state, to make a stronger community, and to make a better family? Kindness, basic human kindness. The New Testament, too, is not silent about it, is it? How often... Did our Savior, as well as the inspired writers of the New Testament, bring to our attention the thought about kindness? May we start in Ephesians 4.32, the last verse of that noble chapter. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Might we notice that was a commandment. Paul said to the Ephesians, you be kind to each other never forgetting that God, through Christ, forgave you. Do we not thus have every right to appreciate how good God has been to us and to display that glorious presence to others? 
Notice also some other passages in Romans 15.1. To that weaker brother, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputation, states Romans 14.1. And do we not notice in the very next chapter, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Does that not, though the word kind itself isn't directly used, does that not display a very powerful attitude of love toward the weaker brother? We should appreciate, should we not, that there are levels or particular ranges of maturity in faith. Some who've been a Christian for many years may have matured to a high plateau and strong faith, whereas that newborn babe in Christ may yet just be learning the sincere milk of the Word, may be himself grappling with major issues of doubt, striving to make that faith what he one day hopes it'll become. Notice that then we who are stronger, those of us blessed to have reached that state, should look upon that weak brother with an attitude of concern and love, hoping that as we can work with them and encourage them, that they too will mature and be that pillar of grace for the church in coming years. But notice another passage in 2 Peter 1 verse 7. Among that listing of what sometimes is called the Christian graces, the second to the last one, upon adding to one's faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, we come with respect to godliness to see that there's brotherly kindness. The kindness that brothers in Christ exhibit one toward another. And might we know that isn't restricted to the men, of course. That includes the men, the sisters as well, as we share brotherly kindness one toward another. Perhaps we can conclude that thought with Galatians 6 verse 10. As you have their poor opportunity, do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. Does it thus seem that there should be an interest on our part to exhibit kindness not only toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, but even toward those who are not members, hopefully yet. Those who perhaps in time, maybe by virtue of our kindness, will come to see that there is someone that loves them. That the world isn't always so harsh and cold and indifferent. But there's a group of people motivated by the love of Christ who in desire and great sincerity love them and want them to come to know the same richness that we enjoy. Kindness. Though what David did now occurred 3,000 years ago, it still illustrates the power of kindness. Later we will see that even Ziba was touched by that. That will wait until chapter 16. But for the time of this occasion, could we not appreciate the movement into chapter 10? As chapter 9 had closed, we've seen David's kindness illustrated toward Mephibosheth. Chapter 10, he will illustrate some kindness toward someone else. Let's look at another episode of the kindness David exhibited. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, we notice a desire again on David's part to illustrate and perform a degree of kindness towards someone else. This time it was to Hanun, who in fact was the current reigning ruler of Ammon. Now, interestingly enough, Hanun's father had recently passed away. His name was Nahash. David had a desire to extend his condolences to Hanun due to the fact his father had recently passed away. That seems like such a noble gesture, doesn't it? Maybe you and I have often visited a funeral home to pay our respect to the life of the departed, but to also extend a hand of kind sympathy to a family in grief. 
That's what David was attempting to do. To pay his respects not only to Nahash, but to share his condolences with this gentleman, the current ruler, the son of the deceased. That alone sounds so innocent, doesn't it? What could possibly have gone wrong? Let us notice some reading. Let's begin reading in verse 3. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanun took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to the buttocks, and sent them away. We can appreciate that Hanun listened to the advice of his counselors, or at least some of the princes of his kingdom. They convinced him that this man David isn't paying any respect to your father, and he isn't sending you any condolences. He's motivated by ulterior motives. He's motivated to send these spies who are claiming to honor your father, when in fact they're striving to learn what they can about Ammon and the capital city, which is Rabbah, and perhaps in time to use that knowledge to overcome it and to overtake it in battle. These princes convinced Hanun that that's what was taking place, and Hanun listened to them. Notice in verse number 4 what Hanun proceeded to do to these servants that David had sent. He shaved off half their beard, which we might state was an enormous humiliation to any Jew, any of the ancient patriarchs, to shave off half their beard. Perhaps that would even have been worse than to shave all of it, for it would have given the appearance that one was in fact not serious about the desire to be a Jew. But not only that, the garments they were wearing. The text says he cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. When one recollects the robe that was worn in that day and time, by and large, it would appear that they took and cut the garment in two so that the lower part of their body was revealed, including the legs as, as well as the lower part of the abdominal section even. Again, what a great humiliation. Could it not be observed then that these servants of David were shamefully and very humiliatingly treated? I wonder how David would respond when word got back to him. Verse number 5. When they told it unto David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown and then return. David was greatly displeased at what the Ammonites had done to his servants. He, in an attitude of simple, basic kindness, had desired to send forth that to Hanun in honor of Nahash. And yet his servants had been so villainously treated, so shamefully despised. When they came back, we notice that verse number 6 begins, and let's note the first part of it if we could. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, they came to appreciate that they were not looked upon favorably in David's sight any longer. To put that in the words of the American Standard, David had come to be repulsed by the children of Ammon. He considered it a tremendous insult for what they had done to his servants. Thus, verse number 6 goes on to say that the people of that area, the Ammonites, began to prepare for war. They thought that their displeasure toward David, the repulsive way that they had treated his servants, would erupt into full-scale warfare. 
Isn't that amazing? What an act of unkindness can sometimes do. Full-scale war is about to erupt. Verse number 6 concludes by saying, The children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of King Maacah, 1,000 men, and of Ishtob, 12,000 men. When we considered in chapter 8 that David's armies then had been victorious over many, such as the Moabites, the Philistines, and many others, including the Syrians, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact not all of the Syrian empire was conquered at that point. We notice here, for example, where are these regions known as Bethrehob and Zobah and Maacah located? Bethrehob was a region just north of Galilee and thus just outside the realm of Palestine. It lay under the control of Syria. Notice that these Ammonites thus sent and besought aid from that region, and in response they were given, as you notice by hire, a significant number of troops. Second is a region known as Zobah, which was again a Syrian region. It lay now just a bit to the east and perhaps a bit to the north of that Bethrehob region. It was somewhat well on the way toward that region we've been studying on Sunday morning, toward Paden Aram, not quite that far away, but at least in that direction. Might we note that a total of some 20,000 troops from these two areas had been hired and brought then to the, to the region of Ammon. Then we have note of Maacah, a tiny little region that's located not far from the Mediterranean Sea, just again north of Palestine, but a little bit to the west. They had dispatched a thousand troops to aid the Ammonites. And then we have finally Ishtob. The American Standard reads that the men of Tob, which is in fact a region we have reference to in the, in the Judges. In fact, in Judges 11, where was that Judge Jephthah from? He was from this same region and area ultimately. Notice that they contributed some 12,000 men. Might we stop to note that 33,000 men thus had been brought now to prepare for the battle against David and his troops, a battle which ensued all because of an unkindness. But let us look a little bit further as well. As we proceed to see the war erupt, starting in verse number 7, David heard of the preparation the Ammonites were making and the great number of troops that they had amassed. David dispatched Joab and the Israelite army to take care of the matter. That army was divided into two parts. Joab controlled one portion of it and they, in fact, battled against the Syrians. His brother Abishai controlled the other part and they battled, as you note, against the Ammonites. We notice something rather remarkable. The army of Israel had been split. That typically in military warfare means defeat. If you can ever divide an army such that they have to fight two battles at one time, typically it does not look good. However, God was with David. He was with Joab. He was with the troops. And even Joab in verse 9 besought the aid of God and the war went well for Israel. In fact, both Syria and Ammon were defeated. Might we conclude very briefly by noting some closing thoughts of that chapter, and then some more lessons that we might see from it. Syria has yet one more matter to deal with. Beginning in verse number 15, after the, each one had been smitten, many of them were simply sent into retreat. In that verse it says, And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together. 
and Hadarez are sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river, and they came to Helam, and Shobach, the captain of the host of Hadarez, went before them. Some time elapses between the previous verse and verse 15. As we notice, the Syrians, though defeated, they were not slain completely. They retreated and ran off. Sometime later, they gathered another force and attempted to fight against David again. That's the scene of verse 16 where Hadarezer comes into play. Now, we had encountered a name like his previously. He had not been slain, but rather we here see that as he puts his troops together again at a place called Helam, this time Shobach, the captain of the host, was actually the leader of the group. We notice in verses 17 through 20, David came to this region. He brought the troops with Joab leading them, and he crushed, utterly defeated at Helam, these Ammonites and these Syrians, finally putting to rest the problems that they would cause him. The chapter closes by saying, And when all the kings that were servants to Hadarezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. It seems they learned a valiant lesson. The God of heaven was with these people. And they thus would not aid Ammon to fight Israel any longer. Perhaps it would be in order to note some particular observations. Among the observations, the character of friendliness. Perhaps some might think David extended kindness and friendliness to Hanun, and yet Hanun did not receive it well. He, in fact, received it suspiciously. Should that then cause us not to be friendly for fear that others will take advantage of us or that others will, in fact, look upon us as Hanun looked on David? Not at all. Proverbs 18.24 still reads that a man that would show himself friendly is the one that will have many friends. If we expect to have friends, we must display friendliness and we must display kindness. That's only one thought of appreciating perhaps another text. That admonition on the part of Solomon to never forget a friendship. In Proverbs 27.10, we read on that occasion, Forsake not thy friendships, or thy father's friendships. We should appreciate that even the man who's been a friend to our father, our literal father, we should not be quick to forget and to forsake that friendship. Doesn't that help teach us the importance of crossing even genealogical lines with friendships and to appreciate the kindness that perhaps men have understood and known and that even their children could carry on that same kindness? Notice also some other statements that we can make about kindness. We certainly would be naive to think that there won't be some like a nun who will not look a gift horse in the mouth, if we may borrow that old expression. They may accept our kindness and then use it to stab us in the back. They may use the very act of kindness to take advantage of us. That still doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to display an act of kindness to them, but does it not mean we, of course, should be wise? Once we've extended that kindness, we should let them know our appreciation of what they have done. David, did he not let Hanun know that he did not seek pleasantly what Hanun had done to his servants? He went to war with them over this. May we illustrate and appreciate that when someone has done that to us, 
we still, of course, must love them, but we may be more cautious about extending kindness to them again. Did not our Savior illustrate that point beautifully in the confines of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 6? Cast not your pearls before swine, lest the swine will, in fact, return and rend you. You see, they don't appreciate what they've been given, though a marvelous act of kindness has been illustrated to them. They take the kindness and then use it to take advantage of the one who extended it. When that is displayed, Jesus said, Be cautious. Don't just keep on doing the same thing over for in, li in all likelihood they will continue to do the same thing they have done as well. May we thus with cautiousness, but ever with love, let them know of our displeasure of what's happened, but to ever strive to use kindness in a cautious and godly fashion. Perhaps another observation could be made as well. Think about Hanun for a moment. Is he not one of the saddest characters to this point in all of 2 Samuel? Here was a man of genuine goodness, striving to simply show condolences to the passing of his father, and yet he treats his servants villainously and treats them with great shame and disrespect. That must have been a very unhappy man in many ways. Today, as we contemplate the matter of showing kindness and how it can be taken, May you and I be quick to say, hey, none did not know what were the thoughts in David's heart. He presumed that David was spying on him, but David wasn't. David had no need to spy on him. He had already been victorious over a large sector of Ammon. He certainly had no need with God behind him to spy. David was not a conspiracy-oriented man. Doesn't that help us see you and I don't know the thoughts of another person's heart either? Certainly enough, by what they say, we can determine sometimes what they're thinking. But ultimately, we can only judge based on what we observe in them. At times, we shouldn't be too quick to suppose the negative. Jesus, of course, could literally read the hearts of an individual, John 2.25. He knew what was in man. But we learn in 1 Corinthians 2.11 that that blessing has not been given to us. We cannot read another person's heart. When they thus appear to show kindness, may we at least first think of the positive, and only later, if evidence warrants it, to consider they truly were conspiracing and were in fact behaving in a way toward us to take advantage. Perhaps that would be the better course of valor, would it not? Hey, none in his reaction toward David perhaps leads us to conclude the lesson tonight by appreciating the continued ascendancy of David. Here was hey, none, a man who in fact had many things at his disposal, even he was not able to defeat David. David, as he still swings on the upward path, is rising to greater and greater heights as king over Israel. That perhaps only whets our appetite for what shall come in chapter 11. What will befall David there? Not to destroy the thought of what that lesson will involve, but can we at least state this? The first ten chapters of 2 Samuel are chapter after chapter of the ascending greatness of David, reaching greater and more powerful positions in his response toward God and in his leadership of the kingdom. Things begin sliding downhill in chapter 11. And at that point, that's all that I will say. We will begin to see a number of things go wrong for David, a number of matters that will cloud his path and darken the horizon, and often he'll be clothed in gloominess, 
And we shall find that there is a single reason for all of that. And that will be the central feature of at least part of the lesson next Lord's Day evening. In concluding our lesson tonight, could we not say then in summary that we've had the opportunity to revisit the kindness of David first illustrated toward Mephibosheth, allowing him to not only have the land of his grandfather, but to show him the ability to eat at the king's table. Then we saw in chapter 10 that that kindness displayed toward Hanun is something that in fact went awry in Hanun's case. He did not look upon it in the proper fashion, and for that he paid a bitter price. May we thus in conclusion this evening be again reminded of the importance of kindness, to display that in ways of a godly character toward others, and to appreciate that it's so often that idea that can help others see what truly resides in each of us. A blessed home in heaven awaiting those who have a character like Christ. Wasn't Jesus a man of kindness who went about doing good, Acts 10.38? One who in fact displayed great concern and compassion at least on one occasion that we can easily recall in Mark the 6th chapter, beginning in verse 33. This very night, are you then a New Testament Christian, having been born again by the blood of the Lamb? If you have never made that step in your life, there is no more serious time of urgency than this one. We are not given any promise of tonight or tomorrow or any day thereafter. Tonight. Today is the day of salvation, Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If we could assist you tonight in your obedience to the gospel, believe Jesus to be exactly who He said He was. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name before men. And finally, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that, how marvelous a spiritual birthday for you it would be. If we could aid you in rededicating your life to the cause of the Master, wouldn't you come then? If either of those is the need of your life, and let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.